This is a podcast from the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Center for Astrophysics. For the full show and archives, visit jodcast.net. I'm here with Professor Chris Lintott, and first of all, welcome back to the Jodcast. I believe this is the eighth time or sometime thereabouts that we've chatted to you, but the last time I think was in 2016, so definitely overdue a catch-up. We're currently at EWAS, the European Week of Astronomy and Space Science, held in conjunction with the National Astronomy Meeting, uh, NAM, which is taking place in Liverpool at the moment. First of all, I guess, what are you up to here at, uh, at the conference? I'm having a very lazy week, mostly. I've got to the point where my students are presenting, and several of them have given good talks and have posters up, so I am enjoying watching them, talking to people, keeping an eye on the beautiful Liverpool weather out there. It was sunny for about 30 seconds earlier, and it's now raining prettily. But yeah, no, it's great to be in a place like this where you have a village of astronomers that you can talk to about projects that might happen, that will happen, that might never happen, and catch up. So you mentioned that some of your students are here presenting. What kind of work have they been doing? I think the, the stuff that I'm finding most exciting is a foray into machine learning. This is mostly uh, with a PhD student called Mike Wormsley, who gave a talk yesterday. Um, it's a bit strange for me to be involved in machine learning. I mostly do citizen science, getting volunteers to look at galaxies or try and discover planets or, or inspect astronomical data. And those projects exist because the machines aren't good enough. But everyone knows that machine learning is hardly out of the news, it's getting better. And so we're trying to explore how you can best combine the thoughts of astronomers and the thoughts of, of volunteers on the Zooniverse website with machines, the idea being that the machines can do the, the drudge work, really, can get rid of things that you expect, and then people can pay attention to the unusual stuff. Uh, but it turns out to be quite a subtle problem for machine learning to work. A lot of the modern techniques rely on loads of training data. So um, you know, Facebook is good at recognizing the places in your photos, because we've all spent 10 years or more uploading pictures to Facebook and telling it where they are. In astronomy, we're almost unique that we're interested in really rare stuff. So you can do a big survey of the sky and still care a lot about a type of galaxy that only appears 10 times. And so Mike's work has been looking at that using the example of low-surface brightness galaxies, or low-surface brightness features, so galaxies that have faint remnants around them. And his challenge is that normally you're working for Google or something, you want a new machine learning problem, you go and set up a training set of 2 million expert classifications. Mike had 140. And so that makes you think differently about the classifications, but it also makes you think differently about the machines. And hopefully this will be part of what astronomers are doing for the next 10 years or so. Really, that sounds really interesting. So that's one thing going on in the, the world of the Zooniverse. How is everything else going? It seems like it's going from strength to strength. Yes, we, we're very busy. We built, I guess, around the time that I talked to Jogcast last, we just released our project Builder. So it's now very easy for scientists to create a Zooniverse project. Instead of coming to us and us doing the web development, people can do their own thing. And that's meant that we've been more experimental and people have been able to come along and do things. I'm very excited. I'll give you a sneak preview of a project that will probably launch in the next couple of weeks with, with a student called Tim Lingard from Portsmouth leading on this one, where we want people to take a really close look at a few thousand galaxies. So normally in Galaxy Zoo, project that started it all, we ask people, are there spiral arms here? Is there a bulge at the centre? And you click buttons to tell us the answer. We've now got to the point where we need to know where the spiral arms are. So we want to look at the properties of parts of galaxies, not just the galaxy. So Tim's built a little tool that lives in the web browser, sits on top of the Zooniverse infrastructure, 
that will let you model your galaxy. So you can choose to add a disk, and then you can add a bulge at the center, you can add some spiral arms, you can make them more or less prominent. And it's quite addictive. You can spend uh, a good few minutes making the perfect model of your galaxy. And what we can do with that is understand how the different bits of the galaxy relate to each other. So some of the stuff I'm excited about doing with that project is really simple. To give you an example, people have often looked at what are called color gradients, so how the color of a galaxy changes as you travel from the center to the edge. But those results are a bit confusing. If you take a spiral galaxy like the Milky Way and you travel from the center to the edge, what actually happens is that you pass through various spiral arms. And so all you detect with your color gradient are the blue spiral arms where lots of young stars are forming. So what we want to do with Tim's results, the help of Zooniverse volunteers and Jogcast listeners and everyone else, is trace round the spiral arms. So to travel from the center of the galaxy to the outside, following the spiral arm and look at how properties change along the spiral arm. And no one's been able to do that because no one's had decent models of lots of galaxies. And so this is a new step for us. It's something we've done once before, but getting people to model data, not just look at it and not just answer questions about it, but create a model that we can use. Okay, brilliant. Um, so it sounds like, yeah, that the Zooniverse world and uh, all of that stuff is uh, going really well. Do you get the time to do any other research other than all of that? Well, most of my research uses the Zooniverse, so, so I'm in, in, embedded in the data, but um, mostly the research is done by the students and postdocs. We're very lucky that we have great people working with us. Um, I do dabble a bit. I've got a couple of side projects. There's an old project on blue ellipticals, so elliptical galaxies that are just forming stars that I'm supposed to be finishing off, so maybe that's ne- next week's problem. You told me just before the interview that you've been going to a lot of the exoplanet talks here at the conference. Has there been anything in particular that's piqued your interest at all? I I think one of the things that's happened just in the last couple of years is how serious exoplanet science has got. Particularly in the UK, we've got very good here at trying to understand what these planets are like. So I think if you came to NAM or indeed to EWAS, either of these conferences a few years ago, I think the talks would have been about how to discover planets um, how to find them in the noise, what types of planet exist in terms of size. Now you go to those talks, and they're about models of the atmosphere. So there's a great talk from Hannah Wakeford, who incidentally has a podcast, Exocast, who, which people should listen to. But after they finish listening to the Jogcast, and all the Jogcast archive, and um, maybe all my interviews as well. Anyway, so, so people are doing modelling of atmospheres, not just, so does the planet have clouds? Does it have molecules in its atmosphere? Can we detect the those molecules. Um, If you're talking about the planet itself, what's the interior like? Never mind whether it's rocky or gaseous. What sort of planet are we dealing with? And there's a huge amount of effort being put in to try uh, and understand how those things come together because we can see that as we build the extremely large telescope that people are working on or the new ESA mission, Ariel, if we're going to have any hope of making use of that data. We need this kind of detailed modelling. So there's an awful lot of people doing an awful lot of hard work, and I've very much enjoyed listening to the fruits of it. One of the very exciting things in, in Experts is just from the last week or so is this selection of Ariel, which is ESA's new exoplanet mission, but it's a UK-led mission by Giovanna Tintinetti and her team at UCL. And so it's brilliant that we've got a UK-led ESA mission. Um, it's brilliant that they've fought their way through to get picked, And it's a dedicated space mission that will launch in about a decade's time to look at the atmospheres of planets. It's also not quite controversial, but people are really, now it's real. People are digging into these estimates of what it will find. I think it's going to be fascinating to see that project develop over the next 10 years. 
So how will that project compare to, for example, the Kepler mission, I think, is one of the most famous ones for exoplanet study? So Kepler was a discovery mission. So Kepler's aim was to find out how many planets and of what size exist in the galaxy. And it's done that. We've got a good idea now. Um, but now we know that exoplanets are common. You'd never launch Kepler. Kepler stared at a region of the sky with no bright stars because they, we thought exoplanets might be rare. And so you have to look at many stars. Actually, we now know they're everywhere, more or less. And so there are a couple of missions coming up, one by NASA called TESS, which is due to launch in a couple of weeks. It's a European one called Plato, and they're going to do the planet discovery around nearby bright stars. And those planets are the ones that we'll be able to follow up. And then Ariel is the first of the next generation where, okay, it's not a planet discovery mission. We know where the planets are. Ariel is going to try and tell us what their atmospheres are like and give us some of the data that we need to do that. So it's classic. In some ways, it's for once, it's the textbook scientific method. We find out what's out there, then we get more information about it, and then we try and understand it and compare it to our own solar system. One very exciting thing I was just talking to somebody about was that we've got to the point where they're taking the, the climate model developed for Earth by the Met Office and using it to try and model some of these exoplanets. Uh, as well as looking at Mars and other planets. So I love the fact that we're using the same tools that we use to understand the Earth on these very exotic worlds. It's really exciting. Is there any Zooniverse project that does relate to exoplanets? Yeah, well, we've had a project for a long while called Planet Hunters that looked at Kepler data. It discovered the first planet around four-star system, for example. More recently, we've had a project called Exoplanet Explorers, which found this amazing system. K2138 is the number, but it's a a five-planet system, and the planets are all in resonance. So they're all very close to their star, but for every three times the first planet goes around, the next one goes around twice. For every three times that goes around, the next one goes around twice, uh, and so on out. So you've got these five planets in this resonant chain. And what's exciting about that is that these things, when they formed, there are natural ways to get them to form in this very deliberate pattern. It looks like they've been arranged, but it's just an effect of friction in the disk from which they form. But planets like these, which are very close to their star, must have formed a long way out and moved in. And what this tells us, the fact they're still in this beautiful pattern, tells us that they moved in in a nice, calm, regular fashion. Not like the astronomers going to coffee about half an hour ago, but as a nice, orderly line of well-behaved planets. So it tells you that in that system, they've never had a chaotic orbit. The really exciting thing, well, the icing on the cake, really, is that we've got these five planets. Then there's a gap, there's no planet. Then there's a gap, there's no planet. There are hints in the data that there's another planet. There's a sixth planet out there, still in the chain, but with a couple of gaps. And we should know this week whether that's true. We've just had Spitzer, the space telescope, look, because we think this outer planet should now just have gone across the face of the star. And so maybe we now know there's a sixth planet, but we're waiting for the data to arrive. That's really exciting. And hopefully by the time this interview goes out, then we might know if Um, that is the case or not. I will let you know. Brilliant. Thank you. So what have you got planned coming up in the next year or so? Any future projects that you're well currently involved in or excited to be getting involved in? I'm very excited. We're going to do a planet hunting project for TESS, so this next NASA spacecraft. That data will hopefully flow straight onto the Zooniverse. The data's open, so everyone in the world can have a look for planets at the same time. So I'm very excited about that. I've recruited a student, so I don't have to do all the thinking myself. So that's very, very exciting. I'm also thinking a lot about Sky at Night. My other side of my life is, is this, the TV thing and, and making sure we do great programs. We've got a program coming up about Gaia, which has its first data release, or its second data release, but the first big data release from this, this spacecraft that's been mapping the nearest billion stars to, to the sun. And we're going to try in a week after that data release to find as many scientists as we can who've already got results. 
So it's, it's probably a terrible idea for a TV programme, but it's going to be a lot of fun to make. And that will be, I guess, May's Sky at Night. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to that. I think that's all that I have to ask you, but thank you again for joining us and hopefully see, well, hear from you again soon on the Jodcast. I can't imagine it'll be too long before we speak to you again. So thanks very much. Thank you. I'll be back as soon as I can.